0: Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in the live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. This week on the podcast, I say it often, but it's a real delight to have Paul Mason on. I mean, Paul, as you'll know, is a journalist, author, strategist, campaigner, and he is pretty prolific. He puts a lot of us to shame as a commentator, as he was on Channel 4 News, as he was on Newsnight, as he's been in The Guardian, as he does on The New Statesman, and as he does some kind of blogs and podcasts for everyone everywhere. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in a really generous way. I think Paul, from what I can see, uses his time his experience and his knowledge in a really kind of movement, generous way, which I think that we should appreciate. And, you know, whenever I've asked him to do stuff for Compass, he's always done it. And he's always done it with a kind of a vim and a rigor and a vigor, which has been welcome. Not least, he's prolific through his books, such as Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere, Clear, Bright Future, and especially for me, post-capitalism. And we'll talk towards the end of my questions to Paul about his next book, How to Stop fascism. So, Paul, just to open it up, tell us where you are and as ever in these weird, odd times, how are you?
1: I'm good, thank you, and I'm in South London, in Kennington, where I live. For those of you who are watching the video, I've got my dog, Lottie, asleep behind me, where she spent many a night hearing me pontificate on the future <laughs> of the left. would be lovely to know what
0: Lottie thinks about all this and whether... There's only
1: one thing she agrees on the Labour right with, and that is with my old MP, uh, on fox hunting. She hates foxing.
0: <laughs> Very good. Very good,
1: Lassie. Tell us, if you can, Paul,
0: what you want to about your political life so that we can you know, locate your thinking and your ideas as effectively as possible. So, you know,
1: talk us through. The short version is I was at Catholic Grammar School. They had a copy of The Communist Manifesto in the library. Around about age 16. I mean, I decided I was an atheist almost the moment I found out Father Christmas wasn't real but I didn't know what I was. And, and so I read The Communist Manifesto with an, an introduction by AG, AJP Taylor saying it was all rubbish. And uh, I didn't think it was rubbish. So about age 16, I started calling myself a Marxist, thanks to the Silesians of Don Bosco for stocking that book in the library. But when I got to university, by the time I got to university, I didn't read any more Marx. I did read, you know, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. I read Jean-Paul Sartre's three-part novel, Roads to Freedom. So I kind of understood what Marxism was about, and I decided that I was a Gramscian. And I went to university and said to the first person I saw, the first left-winger I saw, who's a lifelong friend, Matthew Cobb, the professor of genetics now at Manchester University. I said, why is there no Gramsci society? Why is everybody obsessed with Trotsky? And he convinced me, uh, and this was 1978, That indeed, there was no space for a a, a politics of gradual hegemony. And what we needed to do was fight Thatcherism and the crunch was coming for the working class and it was going to be a life and death struggle. And in that struggle, you needed Leninism. And uh, and I was convinced. I was convinced, actually, not so much by Matthew, but by the experience of seeing steelworkers mass picker to steelworks. And um, the police smashed them up and having the police come around my house because I was involved in troops out movement during the hunger strikes. And it, it, very quickly, everything in, you know, the plays of Bertolt Brecht and the writings of Trotsky and Lenin became a reality around us in Sheffield in the early 80s, late 70s. And I spent the next 20 odd years in left Labour politics with a generally Trotskyist direction. Now, in the 90s, as an activist, what did that involve? You know, I was involved in the steel strike, the miners' strike, the print strike. I was at Wapping. I was in Leicester during the miners' strike. So it was a very scratchy situation with only 30 strikers. We always thought, I never thought there was anything progressive or, or positive about Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And found myself in Russia one, two weeks after uh, Yeltsin came to power, trying to help what was a very weird Russian anarchist and Trotskyist underground left builder a movement that fell apart. It came to nothing. It was very tragic, actually, for several of the people involved. And um, in the 90s, I began to see that some of the foundation stones that on which I based my politics were moving. I can, I can only remember, I think it would be 95 or 96 when the Dockers were on strike, the Liverpool Dockers. They sacked 500 Liverpool Dockers. There was a demo in my local park, Kennington Park, where, you know, the left were there, the Dockers were there. And I was really surprised to see what I didn't know about reclaim the streets turn up with their colourful banners, their nose rings, their green hair. And even more surprised to find out that the Dockers already knew them and actually liked them more than all these leather-jacketed wearing newspaper sellers that I was part of. I should emphasise it was also I'd been also on the poll tax riot involved in anti-fascism. And the, through those, Amelia, I was already aware that what we call anarchism, but in fact was horizontalism and autonomism, was in fact about to experience its moment, and our moment had actually gone. So, you know, I went to the the Prague protest. I was involved in in protests around, the people remember it, the Criminal Justice Act, which was an anti-protest law. But towards the end of the 90s, I began to question, you know, whether or not indeed networked and more horizontal politics were indeed the way forward. And then in the middle of all that, I got to professionally become a fairly successful business journalist at Reed Elsevier. Um, They didn't know much about what I was doing, but my boss was an ex-SWP member, so he didn't really mind. And indeed, by complete coincidence, quite a large number of us actually were ex-left working on the newspaper Computer Weekly, uh, which is one of the best investigative papers I've ever worked on. But in the middle of it all, I got recruited to the BBC and had to park the politics for the next 15 years. Now, I didn't stop being political, and indeed I think I did quite a lot of political reporting with a small p, but the rules are you can't be politically involved. I'd always been inside Labour. I let my Labour membership lapse, rejoined in 2005, so that I could at least least vote for Macdonald when he stood, if you remember, against Gordon, but he never got on the ballot paper. 2015 came along, Jeremy won, and I was very engaged, you know, in private with that group of Labour MPs, and I just decided I had to leave Channel 4, which I was working for at that time, been at the BBC for 12 years, Channel 4 for 3. I thought, well, this is it now, the left's got an an uncalled for chance to do things right, so I need to be having a free voice. And as I emerged into the public world, obviously my politics had changed. I'd become far more influenced by what is sometimes called post-operaism. That is a communist project based on probably the demise of the traditional working class and the acceptance that that's gone, and also based on a transition towards a low work future. And uh, this is a very different politics to the one I went into that period of 15 years perder with.
0: And that's a great
1: arc. Do you think it's taken you back to Gramsci and
0: that more kind of nuanced, plural, democratic form of, of you know, can be big change? Do you feel, and, and, and you kind of missed out. I mean, you therefore yeah. weren't part of the kind of Marxism Today crowd. No, absolutely you not. Know, and
1: I rejected their arguments. And I, I still would have rejected them. I think they had a good point in saying that Thatcherism was different. I, I think in hindsight, I would have accepted the need... For something I'm very strong on now, more of a popular frontist response to Thatcherism. But we had the chance to defeat Thatcherism through a straight class battle and we failed. I don't think that failure was necessary. I was with some miners on the last day of the strikes, standing outside TOCHQ. They were ready to go on. That was a tragic loss. But yes, actually, I would I would describe my political arc as much further. But from Gramsci, I now take the whole idea of the war of position the need to build cultural hegemony inside western society why because we've been defeated and not only that we is now the the heartland of the progressive movement is young employed educated people in cities people of color uh, women minorities then 30 odd years ago the heartland was white male industrial workers it's a very different thing so who's doing the Gramscian strategy has had to change. But I'd also say, and this is very much informing some of the work I'm doing right now on fascism, that Gramsci is probably the most creative Marxist of the 20th century, but he wasn't creative enough. I think that, unfortunately for Antonio Gramsci, being in jail while he was writing, writing cryptically. Gramsci is like one of those chess games that's been played out. You know everything, every move in it. There's nothing left to discover. I think that what's left to build on is very much where Gramsci stops. Remember on fascism he says fascism is only partially a class phenomenon. Now for a Marxist to say that makes you ask Well, what's the other bit? And I'm increasingly interested in the other bits of reality that don't conform to any form of Marxist class analysis. So, yeah, in terms of strategy, people see what I've tried to do, both with the Progressive Alliance, when we worked together on that in the 2017 elections, what I've written in response to Labour's defeat about where we need to go. I think either Labour has a project of convincing the old traditional small town working class to join it in a general project of transformation or if it can't do that and it's possible we can't in the time available then the only other space opening up is in the other direction and that is the rest of progressive politics which is progressive nationalism liberalism and the greens and given that that's where most of the action is to be honest in developed world politics what is bidenism other than a popular front what is The possibility arising from the next German election is a possible green left government. What is the Spanish government other than the social democratic and radical left government? That might be where we have to go anyway.
0: I mean, you've been at the forefront of that move. I feel kind of reluctant about that. I mean, I want a both and. You know, both you and I are creatures of the white working class, and I don't want to give up on that. I don't want to give up on those people or those places. Do you think it's still possible to construct a political narrative and a political programme that is inclusive of both the traditional working class and the newer, more cosmopolitan, socially liberal cities? And and don't we have to do that for electoral reasons, but also we have to do that for moral and political reasons?
1: For both, and because it's not a positive-sum game that if we don't, then the raw material of far-right politics is there in those terms. It already is. Yes, I want both, but it works like this. Unless Labour can take back 60-odd so-called red wall seats and they take another 20-odd places like Swindon, Plymouth Moorview it's called, places like both Milton Keynes constituencies. In other words, the southern half of Britain that don't have the massive industrial tradition but have a tradition of working-class life, unless they can take that, they're not even in business. But radical transformation means more than a majority of one. And therefore, I can't see a radical transformation of this country, its constitution, its civil society into the 20th century, which is for me, you know, sort of now 21 years delayed. You know, I'm waiting for for Britain to begin its journey towards a multi-ethnic, happy democracy based on zero carbon and low work. The only way we're going to get to that is to have a stonking majority in Parliament that delivers constitutional change. And I can't see that actually weirdly... I can see Starmer and Starmerism swallowing up huge swathes of liberal Britain, but it still doesn't get you a majority in Parliament because you need liberal voting voters in Tory Britain probably to vote liberal. This is what Clive Lewis has been going around the country saying. I don't disagree with that. But the base one is having a party that understands what the problem is. We didn't, I'm afraid, we didn't in the last two years of Jeremy Corbyn that continued mantra that whether you live in Middlesbrough or Hackney, you've got the same problems. is just wrong. If you look at the demographic data and the poverty data, I do this for, in the talks I do for Wigan and Camden, because Euston station's in Camden, two hours from Wigan to Euston station. What's the difference? First, the demographics. Demographics of Camden are like a sort of a ball with the most people being adults in the middle and relatively few older people. The demographics of Wigan, our really inverted Christmas tree, the elderly predominate, the ex-workers. It's obvious when I go home, you know, get off the bus, go into the pub in the town centre, full of ex-miners, ex-cotton workers, watching the telly, entirely hostile to labour and its traditions now. And the reason is because their problems are different. and, And we kept telling them they were the same as Hackney. So that didn't work. And we've got to do something different. And I think it's a long haul. I think Keir Starmer understood the beginnings of it, understands the problem. I'm not sure that he or anybody around him has come up with a solution for it.
0: It's terribly hard, the leadership of social democratic parties in an age of decline for social democracy. And you've already alluded to a carbon neutral, low work future, which I think you know a lot of people in Compass would welcome and look towards. But it's very hard to see what the place of you know, traditional work-based, industrial-founded social democratic parties can do in that era. And, and that's as much of a problem for Jeremy Corbyn as it is for Keir Starmer, isn't
1: it? Yeah, but I think I'm more optimistic on that. I think that, and I know this is what the current Labour leadership are doing, they're going to try and sell the Green New Deal to the traditional working class without the rhetoric attached to it. They'll sell it as an industrial strategy that will re-industrialise Britain. That, I think, is what they need to do and that will create new jobs. The problem is for people like me, in the book Post-Capitalism, the, the payload of that book is that I don't think the jobs are there. You, you could create them for 10 years during a transition. Everybody's building electronic cars, electronic EV networks, re, re-insulating millions of houses, building wind turbines, You know the Swansea Tidal Barrage. You could probably do that, but any idea that there's a long-term future in work is wrong. And that's a problem for a party with the word Labour in it as one of its two word title. However, I'm optimistic that we can get buy-in from the communities I come from for the Green New for a version of the Green New Deal that isn't virtue signalling to itself about how green it is. If you see what I mean. And I would ask people in the party to be patient about that. If you hear basically somebody promised to spend a lot of money on wind turbines and reinsulating people's houses without going, it's 88 billion and, and the rest of it. That's just the art of politics. The bigger problem is, as I said before, we're not facing a neutral or static situation in those towns. We're still facing a situation where new Tory incumbents have got the entire wealth of the British elite behind them to dig new routes into those communities. They've got the towns fund, they've got all sorts of backhanders and back channels to be giving money away. They're also building, because in those communities these, there's always existed things like evangelical Christianity. They're now building, just like Trump, on the evangelical groups. They're building on groups like Merthyr Council Truths, 17,000-strong secret, what, closed Facebook group in Merthyr Tidville, entirely de- devoted to shit excuse my language, the Labour Council in Merthyr. So we're up against a mass phenomenon of right-wing populism, and I'm not sure one of my big frustrations, I'm not sure any part of the Labour tradition, with the exception of some of the Labour right, people around hope not hate, have actually got how important and how dangerous this is. For example, I talked to Labour MPs and tried to educate them on the importance of pushing back against what I call in the new book, the thought architecture of fascism. So the great replacement theory, cultural Marxism, wokeness, all of this. And what I find is they don't want to talk about it because it means admitting that a section of their electorate has gone very radically racist. At least the American left faced that in the last year and said, you know what? There is no route to saving ourselves from a lynching that involves agreeing with the guy who wants to lynch us. And I think that if we were to have a series of robust principles-based, narrative-based campaigns in those communities, people generally are very decent. They'll say, all right, well, we don't agree on, you know, gay rights or migration, but what are you actually offering to me? What you cannot be in is a situation where, say you're talking to a, a, an ex-service person, and the Labour MP gave this story the other day, talking to an ex-service per- person, trying to have a, a discussion with them, and they say, why would I want to talk to a Labour person? You can't let that lie. You can't say, oh, well, OK, bye. You've got to go, well, why? What is it that you think about us that is so anathema? And I find the Labour tradition, which is basically a vote counting tradition, Labour canvassing is where do they live? Have they voted Labour before? Let's get them out. Well, on the doorstep in uh, Birmingham Northfield, where I canvassed for the ill-fated Richard Burden, who lost his seat after 20 odd years, brilliant MP. The sum total of our canvassing was to remind Labour-Tory switchers that it was election day and, and remind them to go and vote against Jeremy Corbyn. Unless you understand that is going on and why, and you hide, ah, oh, the working class are really good, really, you know, they're salt of the earth, Yes, they are. They're they're the exploited of the earth, the wretched of the earth. But the point is, something is out there in those communities that is not going away unless we make it go away.
0: This is politics, isn't it, Paul? This is going out and winning arguments and having arguments and having messages and narratives and programmes and processes and campaigns that are going to win people over, as opposed to that old deferential, you know, and or you're born Labour, you'll always be Labour. And in the fluidity of the 21st century, you've got to win arguments and you've got to get your point across. And I think we welcome that. And also, I think, you know, we should welcome the fact that lots of the people you're talking about, particularly over issues like Brexit, put more stress on belonging than they did on buying. They had a post-material agenda, which speaks to some of the things you were talking about, about lower work, lower carbon, and that there are sentiments about morality, about belonging, about sovereignty, about democracy and voice. I welcome that. I think yeah. it's good that they're interested in how they're governed and, how, you know, and who's in control. Is that not a good thing for us?
1: Yes, I think it is. And I think, again, what we face, we're trying to do sophisticated politics in a three-dimensional world with a two-dimensional, unsophisticated party. And it's not only that, you know, if you went to Labour HQ and said to them, what is your theory of the state? They'd, they'd slam the door on you and say, what are you talking about? Unlike, for example, you could go to the Democratic Party in Italy, this Blairite party, and say to them, what's your theory of the state? They say, how long have you got? Sit down. You know, we can explain to you what our theory of the state is. German social democracy, for all its ills, it has two theoretical organs. You know, The, the, the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung organizes external education for the masses and internal education for politicians where they learn about their tradition which involved, unfortunately involves shooting communists but we are a non-theoretical party and that's fine if you can just stack the votes up and count them faced with a disintegration of the tribal alliance that was laborism into scottish nationalism green left liberalism movement politics there's no answer and so for me we've got to start from a theoretical understanding of what we're facing. Claire Ainsley, Starmer's advisor, has done a little bit of work on this and I, and I welcome that. Claire's book, The New Working Class, I might not agree with all of it. In fact, I disagree fundamentally with its methodology, which is the Great British Class Survey, which is identifying classes by what they think and what they do. Nevertheless, it's an attempt to think through the problem. And some of the answers it comes up with are right. That is, it says that family fairness decency and hard work are not reactionary values because they are defense mechanisms that working class people have adopted during a period when solidarity at work hasn't defended them. Now, you could take that further, but at least, as the big Lebowski says, at least it's an ethos. You know, it's at least it's something you can actually talk to. What is the most frustrating is there's no problem, which was a big sub-theme of the Jeremy era, Uh, We don't want to face the problem. Or even more, when you get parts of the left and parts of the left, which I think have done excellent work, basically continuing to argue that we can't fight the culture war, you know, ignore it, uh, forget about it, try and change the subject wherever it comes up. To me, this culture war is not a distraction. It is millions of working class people asking themselves, who do I want to be? Who am I? What's my identity? And if you, it's, it's, if you think that it's your privilege to sit, for example, in a left meeting and go, my identity is the following, you know, what you can make a list, cis, white, person of colour, gay, straight, lesbian, but not allow everybody else to have that discussion, then it's a mistake. We should welcome them saying, well, I'm this. And we could say, well, what have we got in common? And that's a question and not an assertion. So a large part of the problem, I think, that the left is facing in Britain is its refusal to face up to the reality of the changed forms of exploitation, the changed identity, the changed consciousness of working class people, and its desire to live. You've seen this with some of the elderly Labour MPs, some on the left, some in the centre. They wanna live in the world they grew up in. Shit, I do, I loved it, but it's gone. So what are we gonna do about it? So we've got
0: not a lot of time, I don't think, Paul, between now and the next election, I mean, I think it will probably be sooner than most people think. I mean, the the Tories will go, you know, when they think they can win and and replicate the kind of majority they've got now. What are some of the key things, you know, both for Labour but for the centre-left, progressive parties in general? What are the key things we need to be doing between now and that moment, Paul, in order to get ourselves in a position where at least we know we can stop another Conservative government?
1: Well, the first thing is to recognise that the, the fiscal dynamics of the last budget were that the bottom line austerity for the middle class begins in 2024. So the election's got to be before that. In fact, it begins in 2023. So I would imagine they will go before May 2023. I would say February or even the late autumn of 2022. They'll still be feeling the fizz of a recovery. We now learn that the inquiry into COVID-19 will never report this side of zero net carbon or the state withering away, I think. So there'll be no smoking gum for Labour to take into that. So the only way we can win is to create three things, a political offer, a narrative, and a vision. Now, Keir, he went about this methodically. Uh, you know, I know this from talking to people close to him. I was involved, as you know, in his campaign. The problem Labour faces that is, its brand is so besmirched by controversy that it's hard to get a hearing. In one of the focus groups, somebody said it's like two parties in one party. And in other words, not only have we got the expulsion of Jeremy, the repression of the left, a very, very unfortunate and, and, and uncalled for attacks on people like Nadia Whittam, who was perfectly within her rights to say, I'm not going to condemn blanket everything we saw on TV over the Bristol riot. The, all that going on, the purge of the left... 20-odd branch secretaries, and then the memory of Blairism, you know, the memory that, you know, we've got Blair and Alistair Campbell hanging around. And in that situation, I don't know whether it is actually possible to repair the brand of the Labour Party. Now, I want to, because for me, it's the historical vehicle of the working class. So the first thing is to to do that. The problem is, what I think Starmer and the people around him have done is they thought, well, the, the combination of having to do that in a period where there's very little chance of action or controversy because of COVID, we've got our work cut out even to have shadow cabinet meetings or most political advisors working for MPs have never been in parliament, for example. Right. We're not going to do the offer, the vision and the narrative until later. And so Kia comes along. He wanted to do it in January. He did it in February. He does the vision speech and the vision is, well, what is it? Yeah, it's good. It's, we want a 1945-style transformation of society. But what does that mean? Without policy, it's just a vacuum. And here's the problem. You only tell a story through actions. One of my side gigs is I have been involved in, in, in screenwriting and, and I've written three plays that have been produced. Storytelling is about action. It's about confronting a person with an unexpected situation and how do they act? You saw a brilliant example of storytelling and narrative creation Two, two weeks ago, when four Labour MPs, so Nadia Whittam, Apsana Begum, Bell Ribeiro Addy, and Zara Sultana, went on the kill the bill demo and they stood together. And my goodness, to me, they looked impressive. They looked like the future of Britain. They looked like the future of the Labour Party. They were utterly confident and articulate. But what had they done? They'd acted. They'd done something that they probably weren't supposed to do and nobody gave them permission to do. What the problem with the Labour front bench is, is it's just not acting. And it's certainly not acting in a way that surprises people or grabs their attention. So we've got to start acting and we have to have a programme. I'm sorry, that's just, you cannot have a party without a programme. It's a, it's, a, it's a bizarre situation. So either grasp the nettle and say, 2019 manifesto is history, we've come up with a new fiscal policy, a new monetary policy, a new industrial strategy, Ed Miliband, that's your job, a Green New Deal or whatever you want to call it, and start selling it unless you do that, you're not doing politics. And what frustrates me at the moment the most is actually some of the, what you might call the labour right. I only use that term because that's what we call them. These two people I'm going to mention, I have incredible respect for, which is Rachel Reeves and Lisa Nandy. If you watch what Rachel and Lisa do in politics, it's quite obvious what they believe. Now, you might not agree with it, but it's what informs their interventions. And it makes them sound confident. I just think the, the party itself is not sounding as confident. And I really think that we've got to get on the front foot, not in the next year, but in the next month. I think everything's possible. We've seen that Jeremy taught us that everything's possible. Jeremy taught us you can come back from X to Y by being bold and innovative and open and of this world and not looking like a sort of career politician and taking risks. And it didn't come off, but it nearly came off in 2017. Faced where we are, with Starmer going backwards in the polls, backwards in approval ratings, I would like to see Labour, of course, with Scotland looming as a major strategic issue, I would like to see Labour come on, take the risk and start acting.
2: I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. It's Bloody Complicated is brought to you by Compass and is made possible by the support of our amazing members, like Clive. Here's Clive on why he joined the Compass community.
3: My name's Clive Lewis. I'm a Labour MP for Norwich South. I've been involved with Compass for seven years or more and a member for a few years now. My involvement with Compass first started because it was the first left-wing organisation I saw that was really pushing forward the environmental agenda. This was, this was years ahead of anything that was being talked about in Labour at the time. And I thought it was fantastic. I keep supporting Compass today because it's a refuge, you know, in a a political environment which, to be quite frank, is extremely tribal, it's extremely difficult, it's the culture of Compass. It's about asking difficult questions and acknowledging that there will be differences, but actually those differences are a strength, not a weakness. You can be in any faction of the Labour Party or any faction of the Green Party or the Liberal Democrats or any other progressive organisation. Or in no political party, just someone who's interested in the world around them and want to see the world change for the better. That's where I get my political sustenance from. And, and it means a lot to me to be a part of that community. And that's why I would wholeheartedly endorse it to you.
2: Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk slash podcast. And now back to the conversation.
0: I think we'd all agree with that. Let's get the actors of the Compass membership into this, Gabriel. We want to start picking some people up. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks, Neil. First up, we've got Joe Painter. Okay, thanks. Hi, Paul, Neil. Thanks for a great session as ever. So my question, Paul, is what do you think of Grace Blakely's argument that homeowning pensioners in northern English towns, such as Wigan, even if they have only modest incomes and small houses, have very different material interests from precariously employed young renters in big cities, e.g. Camden, and the economic policies that help the latter will not appeal to the former.
1: I think the, the economic facts are true. It has to be said that the elderly homeowners also have grandchildren, most of them, who they care about. What I'm wary of And it's something that, you know, Grace is somebody I've got incredible respect for, but I don't agree with on on so many issues. One of them, which is economic nationalism, the desire to destroy the world order and the rest of it. But another one is something that was pretty core to Corbynism, the idea that economics solves everything, that economics is at the root of the divergence between Wigan and Camden. No, it's it's actually something much more deeper than that. It's about life experience. It's not about who owns a mortgage and who doesn't. It's about that there's no money in Wigan. It's about the the, the fact that the town centre of Wigan on a Friday night is like London during the lockdown, on a normal Friday night. And also, let's say this as well to our colleagues who tend to think from the economics first, for obvious reasons, the left sees problems as consecutive. So we've now got a problem of the culture war and the Red Wall. And before we had a problem with Blair. And before that, we had the problem of declining the Alford Index, you know, declining vote for the working class. I see them as cumulative. If you're living in Wigan, you're not thinking, I own a house and this young person doesn't. You're thinking, my entire life was destroyed by Thatcherism and Labour never did anything about it, despite having 13 years in office. That's what you're remembering. But I think on the question, she is right. Now, what do we do about that? Labour, in two previous elections, never advanced policies that attacked ordinary working-class elderly homeowners. They just didn't, quite rightly, and they must never do so in any, under any circumstances. But what we need to do is build a movement. When I was campaigning in Lee, the 2019 election, yes, we were getting the door slammed in our faces. Yes, it was impossible for the candidate to appear in public at times because she was too scared of being threatened by people under, who were under the influence of the UKIP and the BMP, the Brexit party. But also... People came rushing out of their houses to take leaflets and come with us, young people and and some not so young people. In every one of these towns, there's a political conflict and we didn't find a way of addressing that in 2019. We need to find a way of addressing it
2: now. Thanks, Paul. Should we take another couple of questions? We've got one here from Joanna Watson.
4: Thanks, Paul. I'm really enjoying this. I'm finding it it's really speaking to me. The question that I had, it probably doesn't sound quite so big as some of the uh, things you've been talking about, but um, it refers back to what you were saying about, you know, having grown up with all sorts of different types of protests, which immediately made me think, as I spent the last 30 years organising Friends of the Earth protests, about the crime bill. Which is the most appallingly repressive thing that any Home Secretary brought, and yet we haven't really heard peep from Labour. And I'm just wondering how the hell does Keir Starmer stand up and actually battle all the bad stuff in that bill and really call it out without playing into the narrative that Tories are so good at—that he's, you know, wants chaos and anarchy. And if he if he doesn't stand up against it, he he ends up just being a sort of pale shadow trying to make kind of moderate noises. And it's not helped, of course, by what happened in Bristol at the weekend. So how does he create a persona for himself that has the integrity to call what that woman is doing?
1: I mean, I'm afraid that law enforcement sources are pretty clear and have been from the beginning of the pandemic. Right from the beginning, British security planners were worried about things like what happened in Bristol, which is, as it... I wasn't there. I only read what I read in the papers and talk to people, is that legitimate protest which was legitimate even when it decided to go outside the, the police station, ran into, A, a bunch of people who are fairly hardcore, you know, sort of autonomous anarchists, whatever you want to call it, but also people who are just fed up with the lockdown. So, the Home Office put a, a call today to the police saying, Start collecting intelligence on what's going to happen because they must clearly fear an, a 1981 style. What did, we, what did they call it? There's a famous anarchist pamphlet, A Summer with a Thousand Julys. That's got to be a fear. Now, if that happens, what did we do during the other urban riots? Labour. You go out and you try and build confidence in the community, you try and build violence is not going to solve any of it. It's just a pressure, pressure cooker. It's just a classic bit of letting off steam for the system. But we understand why people are angry. So let's indeed focus that anger into a political movement that can stop this policing bill. I'm really glad that under the impetus of what happened at the Sarah Everard vigil, Labour see Labour's po- policy has always been abstain on the second reading, put a few amendments in on almost everything, the CHIS bill, the, the Overseas Troops Operation bill, and now the policing bill. And I think they got bounced out of that by the scale of public anger, because that public anger wasn't just the the left Labour MPs like Nadia, like Zara. It was MPs like my MP Florence Shalomi, who is very much from the sort of centre wing of the party, being involved in and being representing a place that where women don't feel that they're well re- well protected by. The policing and, the police and criminal justice system. No, we have got to be on the side of everybody who is annoyed by that bill and who wants big change in what Priti Patel is, is trying to impose. Now, what's the problem? You put your finger on it very well, Joanna. The problem is Sisters Uncut have a very clear narrative on that bill. And I happen to agree with 99% of it. What's the Labour Party's narrative on the bill? What's actually wrong with it is what I want to know. And from what moral standpoint, from what grounded gut level politics is Nick Thomas, Simons and Keir and and the rest actually opposing this bill? I'd like to hear that. And so you're right. You're wrong, I think, to say they've done nothing. They have done something. But what is missing even now is a narrative. This thing will be around all summer because it's perfect for the Tories. Like I say, going back to it, I'm certainly not calling for any civil unrest. I'm not even predicting it. The police are predicting it, and the security establishment had been predicting it, and I think it's likely. Now, in that situation, Labour's got to get out. Final point: What went wrong in Bristol? There was no leadership. There was no leadership because you get a £10,000 fine for even trying, even volunteering to negotiate with the police. You can be up for a £10,000 fine as the organizer. So there was no organizers. It was the same actually on Black Lives Matter last summer. The, the ones that got violent. There was not a single Labour politician, MP, local councillor on the one I went to. It was a mistake. So we've got to be there. You can't start criticising or distancing yourself from protest unless you've tried to lead it. Thanks, Paul.
2: Next up, we've got a question from Paul Cottrell. Paul? Paul, hello, by the way. I love your
1: stuff on Twitter. Here's my question for you, Paul. Sorry, Paul from Scalmersdale, just down the road from
4: Wigan. Paul, on the Red Wall Towns and Town Funds you mentioned, uh, is it reasonable to believe that the mutual aid stuff that's come through, uh, developed during the pandemic can be harnessed to develop mutual local economic initiatives that might actually compete with the Tory elite patronage funds you're talking about, like the Towns Fund and the other stuff that's coming through from Krugerland? Or is it just pie in the sky? Are we wasting our energies doing that?
1: Well, I don't think anybody's wasting their energy by doing mutual aid. Politics is no sub-political. the the fact that we've got food banks everywhere and probably about a million people a week relying on them is testimony to, you know, while the stock market's been booming and asset prices have been rising, the actual incomes of people are getting more and more suppressed and depressed. uh, And the insecurity is awful, especially for young people. So I think that everything we can do to build mutual aid is good. Again, I haven't heard... Too many Labour politicians use the word mutual aid. It's been something that came out of that milieu, the kind of plan C, anarchist, far left milieu. How much of it's going on in specific places, I don't know. There are strong mutual aid or kind of community organising things going on independent of the party in many of these constituencies. So we need to build on that. But I think by comparison, a couple of million going into some of these towns is quite a lot and it will buy quite a lot of patronage. And certainly we don't want to be refusing it. We want to be saying, well, what what we do want to be asking, because there's no local press left in most of these towns, is, hold on a minute, what's the relationship between the councillor or the mayor who's spending the money and the building contractor who's getting the job? Is it by any chance the fact that they are neighbours or both members of the the Tory party or whatever, uh, as has been true of 30-odd billion worth of COVID contracts? But I think your question is a good one we've got to start acting like we want to rebuild society from the bottom up. Thanks, Paul. We had a classic,
2: very popular question among Compass members, and we're going to go to Jay Mercer to ask it.
1: Paul, you've referred to this, but inevitably those of us who have come to Compass from the Liberal side are very interested in how we can potentially work together going towards the next general election. What do you think the chances are of a progressive alliance for the next general election. Well, let me give you my experience on this. In 2017, me and Neil and others, Clive Lewis, really tried to push the idea that that we could actually get into power if we took seriously local level agreements. And what happened? Partly because, remember at that time, the Labour HQ was still in the hands of the tribalistic Labour right, partly because the Corbyn leadership didn't agree with this, we got nowhere with that, with the party. However, some local level agreements worked and I think that they they did affect the outcome. They affected the result. In 2019, I think we went back and I think we need to go forward. The fact that I say to you, Jay, that I want Starmer to win as many votes from the Liberal Party as possible strategically is, is the case because I think that one way or the other, we have to get all of Progressive Britain under one roof to defeat the Tories and lock the racist minority of British society out of power for a generation so that this rising generation, generation left can finally be represented. And of course, zero net carbon can be achieved. In the next election, which will be a snap election, it'll be very obvious so that the illusion that, see, remember part of Corbynism's myth and, and a myth that I subscribed to, so I'm not using this in a bad way. It's social, it's Sorrellian myth was that Give us a straight hearing in the press and a fair election, and we can turn 25% into 40%. Um, They nearly did it once, and they thought they could do it again, but they didn't. Now, this time, that myth won't be there, because Starmer isn't thinking that the reason that he's wallowing in the polls is because everybody thinks he's a communist spy, you know, or whatever, and that Rupert Murdoch's on his case. The reason is because we haven't convinced enough people. So if we get to six weeks before, it looks like the Tories are going to go for a snap election. That whole conceit that was part of Corbynism, that maybe we can storm the heavens, in from 25% to 40% by just having a fair hearing in the media and getting out there with a member-led mass door knocking thing won't be there. It will be it's a gone illusion. It's a lost illusion, which is good for the idea of realism in local political deals. You've got a Labour MP, Clive Lewis, going around actually advocating that we more or less leave 50 seats to the Liberals, whatever happens. Um, nobody's expelled him, etc. So I'm more hopeful that we'll have a, a base layer. Now, what's missing from that is trust at local level. Obviously, parties are very tribal. All parties are tribal. Yours, you know, the Liberal Democrats is, you know, the kind of winning here, the, the bar charts and the rest of it. But it will be obvious where you are trying to win and where you might win and where you're not. And I think that I want to see the party, the Labour Party, take seriously the possibility of creating either a national or a local level set of agreements but the question then of course will be around what one of the payloads of my next book is where the threat in western society is to democracy and it is from the far right and the and the populist right and populism is going up in flames you know we used to think it was a firewall against fascism but it's not it's actually the firewalls on fire where that's a problem and i think it might be by 2023 in britain the kind of tory faragist richard tice you know, alliance on a roll, then the first thing is is you've got to defend democracy, and extend it, and and prioritise cross-party collaboration.
2: Brilliant. Thanks, Paul. We've got time for one more very quick question. Pamela Calder.
4: Hello. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask, is there any evidence that Starmer is even trying to create a programme at the moment? I mean, I don't think that going out to focus groups to ask them their opinions is the way to get a narrative and to give any idea that he knows what he's trying to do.
1: Look, I won't disfocus focus groups as much as other people do, because one of the problems we've got in the northern constituencies that we've lost is the party itself is not a very good nervous system for understanding what's going on. You know, you've got people, say where I come from in Lee, you know, Lee momentum, ex-miners, ex-industrial workers absolutely solid leftists, and they just are in complete conflict with their neighbours over cultural values. Now, we have to be able to talk to those neighbours and listen to them and understand what they're saying. So focus groups can be useful for that. I think there is evidence that Kia is creating or on his way to creating a programme. It's just taken too bloody long. And the reason it's taking too long is because it'll involve a struggle. And it involves a struggle with the right. Think about it. The essence of all Labour politics, even in a period where the debt is 100% of GDP and the Bank of England is just printing money to fund the government. All Labour politics is about fiscal and monetary policy. That is, how much are you going to borrow? What are you going to spend it on? Where does the money come from? And the Labour right, I'm sorry, they just haven't, they've missed out 20 years of history. They're still in a world where Gordon Brown and Leicester Darling were. As I understand it, you know, you've got members of the Labour right inside the shadow cabinet saying we can't make any spending commitments. I'm sorry, that's it. Forget the election. Might as well go home. I'm not going to. Why would I go on the doorstep to have it slammed in my face again when you can't get off your backsides and actually start offering the British working class a future? So, yes, we need them to start doing that. It's a fiscal offer. What is the borrowing? No, Biden has done it. Biden says the post-COVID fiscal stimulus starting today is $2 trillion. That's a tenth of GDP. That's good enough for me. A tenth of British GDP is $200 billion, which, funnily enough, is just about what John McDonnell went to the polls with last time. So $200 billion would be fine. Labour says, in addition to everything the Tories have done, we will do $200 billion more. And now we're in a discussion. I was in a harsh conversation inside Corbynism. At a crucial moment before the 2017 election, when what you had was people trying to do both cancel student debt and cancel all the Tory welfare cuts. Blame me. I'm the one who said, do one, because one is eye catching and brave. Two sounds like you're not serious. And they chose student debt. And of course, the Labour right came out and said, no, no, this is terrible. We're now a party of students, not of welfare recipients, including some people who'd said we weren't a party of the welfare recipients before. But it was the right thing to do. Fix the fiscal offer, make hard choices. Annalisa Dawes is going to have to be sitting in the ring saying, no, you're actually not getting five billion for buses or you are. But that means maybe some cuts somewhere else or no reversal of cuts. So we need yeah. a programme, Paul, and we've got to wind up. That's my point that the program's going to be based on a fiscal offer. And the rest of it will come from Labour's values and objectives. And let's finish where we always do. And your
0: energy and enthusiasm is infectious as ever, Paul, and it's to be really welcomed and, and long may it last. And you started doing this with Biden. But where does hope come from, from you, both here in the UK, but as you kind of survey the world as well? Because we have to be hopeful, because we must be, because it is either socialism or liberal socialism or social liberalism or barbarism.
1: Where does hope come from for Paul Mason? Well, obviously, the defeat of Trump. There's going to be a four-year low-level insurrection against Biden, but the left is in a good place. They have influenced Biden a lot more than people are prepared to admit. Bolivia defeated a Trump-backed coup. We'll see where that goes, but that in itself is, of course, for hope. I've been to Bolivia. I've interviewed Evo Morales. I'm so delighted to see him back in La Paz. The Lula is now completely free to stand in the next election against Bolsonaro. I think that will bring a showdown. I think that will bring possibly a military coup and then Brazil will be in play. The, Greece, I'm very hopeful for because we've seen Syriza ride the knocks of being defeated by this horrific, barbaric alliance of the IMF, ECB and European Commission, but retains its autonomy and radicalism to an extent as a left party. I'm still very, very keen on the European left. You know, the Finnish European left, the left party, it's in government. It's got the education ministry. It's doing things that we dream of doing. I also think that Germany, that if we did get an SDP, green FDP government with Dilinko on 10%, the left party standing outside it as a critic, that would be an incredibly good place to be. Notwithstanding my criticisms of the FDP, uh, but it would be a good place to be. Because we're going to end on our high. I, I won't do all the downsides, but the obvious ones are France and Italy.
0: And also interesting things happening in Spain, in Portugal, etc. So it isn't all doom and gloom as ever. Paul, you've been fantastic. That was a real great tour de force around the issues and the options for the future of centre-left politics here in the UK and more broadly. So thank you tremendously for that. The next edition of its Bloody Complicated series is on Tuesday the 13th of April at 6pm when we'll be joined by Vince Cable another prolific author and another dancer. He does ballroom, not like Paul's Northern Soul, but I'd love to see it if he tried. Until then, how to stop fascism out in May. Thanks to everyone, as ever. Keep safe, keep well, and keep hopeful. So... If you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast. And you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one. You can tweet me at Neil, N-E-A-L underscore compass or compass at compass office. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating will help us reach more listeners in the future and it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too